0: Hey, it's Mark Shafley here. You're listening to the Jet Centric podcast.
1: Hey there, Winnipeg Jets fans! Welcome back to the Jet Centric podcast. My name is AJ, one of your hosts, and this is episode seventy-one, uh, dedicated to, to the Evgeny Malkin. pretty sure you wear seventy-one, and maybe Kovalchuk at the World Championships in Ottawa years ago. I think he wore 71. Maybe Malkin did. Anyhow, um, this episode we have an interview with Bartley Kivas. Mike Friesen did this interview with Bartley. Um, Bartley's from CBC, formerly Free Press. And uh, they did this back in July, which becomes obvious uh, just by some of the things that they say. Um, the audio took a while to get to me from Mike. I think he recorded it with uh, Solitaire. Uh, from Windows 95 because the file name was something I'd never heard of so I couldn't do anything with it I sent it to Ryan he couldn't do anything with it for a while Um, we eventually figured it all out and got this audio to you too so my apologies to Bartley Kivas for taking so long to post it but um, I'm gonna blame Mike and Ryan and then myself so in that order um, ranking from first star of blame to the third star of blame actually no it's mostly on me but um, Yeah, anyhow, here it is, it's from July, Uh, and the whole idea of having Bartley out, it took a while to actually get approval from CBC to have him, but was to sort of talk about the business side of uh, True North uh, in this city. Uh, Some people might see this episode as being political, I mean, I have no bent in that at all, I don't really care, but I just thought it's a different topic, something that people don't usually talk about, I know Bartley writes about it, but something that you won't usually hear in audio form, so they chat for about an hour and a bit, I don't really know exactly, and uh, yeah, it's really good. I hope. I, I wish that they'd got into some of the charitable stuff, because CBC wrote an article about uh, the sports teams and their charitable givings, and how it, they're all not really that charitable. But then I had the pleasure of sitting next to a gentleman named uh, Dwayne. I think his name is Dwayne, something like that. And he's in charge of that whole uh, program for kids at True North Runs where they uh, have the after-school hockey programs. And uh, I've heard only great things from that. And we had a great chat at the game. He had some things to say about uh, that article. Uh, and I invited him to come on the podcast, but I didn't follow up with it. Neither did he. So maybe that might happen again in the future where he could talk about uh, their charitable arm and how much uh, they give and how much they spend on on being able to to, to give with some of the big fundraisers that they do. Um, so if you're thinking this is overly political, it's really not, it's just trying to see it from a different angle and, uh, something that is, I don't think has ever been done on the airwaves really. So, uh, great interview with, uh, Bartley and, uh, I hope you enjoy it. Also, they do talk a little bit about the bombers and yeah, just some of the funny mechanisms that, uh, these big organizations and sports teams get. So hopefully you enjoy it again. Apologies that it took so long. Interview is from July, which will become apparent and, um, that's it. So enough talking for me that's two minutes and 48 seconds of me chatting let's get to the interview and uh that's it here we go
2: i am mike and i'm hosting this episode with bartley kivas how's it going today bart
0: going reasonably well thank you very much
2: that's good that's good so uh for you listeners most of you will know Bartley as a journalist at cbc Uh, he's the author of three books stuck in the middle Stuck in the Middle Two and A Day Tripper's Guide to Manitoba, the first two books of which I did successfully give as gifts to my father-in-law. So I'm a customer of yours.
0: Fantastic, and he's still your father-in-law. That's he's good. still my father-in-law. He has yes. disowned you after those books. That's yeah. good. I
2: don't know what he's saying to my wife behind the scenes, but I think it's still a good thing. So no, honestly, he loved the books. Cool. Uh, he loved them a lot. Um, I guess some other things is uh, for those of who, for everyone who follows you on Twitter, they uh, will have come to know you as an outdoorsman. A self-described food geek, uh, and most of all, a Jets fan.
0: I am a fan, and I was a fan, but covering a couple of playoff runs that kills the fan inside. And I am—I can say that my fandom is on hold. It's—I am in stasis. The—the the fandom is the fan—the fan inside me died a little last year.
2: I don't think that you're alone. And I definitely had a suspicion that you would want to qualify the Jets fan comment. Yeah. Because
0: honestly, because Paul Friesen would go, aha, I told you so. You shouldn't be in this dressing room. You shouldn't be interviewing these. You can't have fans in here. We have to be objective reporters. And you'd have a point. I've had some good friends say, dude, what are you doing covering? It's like last year around the playoffs, I had said to my bosses, you know, this team is poised probably for a playoff run. At the time I didn't think third round. I thought, Second round, maybe, yep. maybe, probably. thought they were going to get past Minnesota. And uh, they're like, all right, you're doing it. I'm like, wait, 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 what? Oh, but don't actually cover sports. Just tell some cool stories about fans around there. I'm like, okay. So it was it was an interesting experience to see the side of, a certain side of journalism that I had never aspired to be a part of. I would, you know, I'd written about sports primarily from an economic perspective from a subsidy perspective, from a government funding perspective. That's primarily been my work in covering sports, pro sport, not just hockey, but football. Well,
2: you've definitely handed me a segue there, but I'm also super curious about what you said uh, with respect to being like a non-sports reporter covering sports.
0: A little bit, yeah. I mean, I read everything sports reporters write. I don't listen to a lot of sports radio, but I listen I, – I, I read – all of what my former colleagues at the Free Press and uh, you know colleagues at the Sun write, and uh, and Murat's doing, and uh, it's interesting to me to realize how many the constraints that they're under trying to report. I mean, it, you've prob- you've had this on the podcast before. Many many other people have said it, but it's difficult to speak to pro athletes. They typically want to maintain a very specific narrative and they give only so much of themselves in terms of time. Like when I, I used to be an entertainment reporter, I was a music critic for years and years and years. And sometimes I'd speak to uh, often do interviews with musicians and sometimes very well-known musicians and they try to stay on track. And I've had publicists jump into conversations and try to prevent us, prevent me from having certain questions in certain areas. And It was particularly terrible when you're talking to like hollywood stars where they just get very upset if you dare to ask them about something other than their current project but i went from there to city hall and politicians they'll pretty much answer any question about anything not the prime minister not the u.s president but municipal politicians you pretty much have free range all the time so going from there to like athletes who get take umbrage to any question outside of something they're expecting and i'll give you a concrete example i remember one of the first time I actually went down to the Jets dressing room. It was a Thanksgiving. There wasn't much going on. And We don't do a lot of coverage at CBC sports coverage at CBC Manitoba. A lot of the sports and entertainment that they used to do, they decided, you know what, private media are doing that. CBC is supposed to do other things. Let's not do that. But it was a, it was cut down day uh, in uh, a couple of years ago. I was actually I remember now. It was 2016. Uh, it was it was the Donald Trump was running for president and he had made, he had dismissed um, the infamous video where he's caught caught talking about grabbing women by their nether regions as locker room talk. So it was cut down day, and Andre Pavlik had been sent down, and there was not much going on for the TV show, and I said to the the guy running the TV show, like, let's just, let's do Jets today. It's like the big news in town, and we did. But CBC uh, in Toronto realized, oh, we've got a reporter going to a locker room on a slow news day, Thanksgiving Monday. um, Can you ask Jets about the locker room talk business? So I'm like, all right. so I asked Blake Wheeler who's an intelligent man. I was like, so you know, would you consider this? Like, would you consider what Trump did locker room talk? And he just gave me the classic Blake Wheeler, you know, glower. And just like, (laughs) I don't talk about politics, which is fascinating, because he was one of the only NHL players who spoke out about Trump a year later. Um, With
2: respect to the uh, kneeling during anthems thing, yeah, yeah, that-
0: yeah, I believe so. I actually, I believe it was related to that. He was one of the only NHL players who made a statement. So I don't know. I'm not going to claim that moment stuck in his head, but it was interesting because, you know, the different members of the Jets have, are of different political persuasions. Uh, but it was really interesting to me that what was a politician if they got a question out of left field that they didn't want to answer. Would just simply go, yeah, I'm not gonna talk about that. But the it's fascinating for me as a reporter who is used to throwing any hard question I want, not even a hard question, any question I feel like. Like Brian Bowman sits there, the mayor of Winnipeg, after mm-hmm. a press conference. And to his credit, we'll sit and field questions at his briefings after executive policy committee meetings or count on council days. He'll field reporters' questions on any topic until reporters don't want to ask questions anymore. It can go 40 minutes and, you know, he will only leave if he really has to run. So it's interesting that professional, like this is the mayor of a city. It's interesting that professional athletes typically, especially in the NHL, because the NHL, they definitely, it's been said many times how the NHL is not about the individual. It's all, you know, I gave 110%, let's get pucks deep as long as we stick together as a team, yada,
2: yada, yeah. yada. So I'm wondering about the different motivations there uh, because because uh, I said, like, a politician, they're almost, like, thankful to have someone willing to carry their message out. Meanwhile
0: – Sort of say, a no. I mean, if you're the mayor, it's not fun to sit there and get – like, a lot of times you're – he's getting – like, why did you do this? What did you say what you mean? How are you going to do this? These aren't fun questions. But most politicians – this is a dog, not a person groaning – <laughs> most politicians will – Politicians who understand the role that media play in democracy and accountability, the mayor will never fully answer many questions, but at least he'll field them. And that's different from, you know, the prime minister, I'll take two or three questions, or the president of the United States, I won't take any questions. Um, Cabinet ministers in various governments not fielding questions. This particular, it's not fun. Yeah, a city councilor, yeah, there are city councilors that would love to talk about anything anything yeah. professional athletes some are chatterier than others i'm not claiming to have a great experience doing it like i've had other when i walk into a locker room doing when there's bazillion mics going it was really interesting in the jets long playoff run because at first there's a bunch of mics in there then there's even more mics and soon if you don't have mics on poles it's a giant scrum and there's so many people you know by the third round it was it was it was really interesting you can't just put your arm in you're not going to get it anywhere close you're not going to be able to hear what's going on we've got you know you're putting your you're putting essentially the microphones on long poles, uh,
2: like just to physically get there. Fist,
0: yeah, and because right. there's also there isn't physically room for people to stand shoulder to shoulder, and the veteran camera people are making sure they get in there first to get a good angle, you know. But what I'm I'm going with this long-winded rant that you you should cut up is the
2: there will be no cut ups. <laughs> um, okay,
0: well, what what where I'm going with this is, um, and I've lost my train of thought to some degree. These athletes do not necessarily want to give of themselves. There isn't a culture of disclosure that there is amongst most politicians.
2: That's actually – that's what I wanted to pick up because, I mean, of course, when we're recording this, the Toronto Raptors have, like, recently won the NBA championship. The NBA is
0: very different than the NHL culture. It's growing
2: like crazy. I'm guessing, did you ever get a chance to interview NBA players? No,
0: never. I mean, my only individual – like, what I was going to say is I've had other – like some of the veteran sports people say sometimes they'll get on a conference call a little bit for CBC and they'll be like, dude, you've uh, so-and-so will never ask, answer a question like this. Like there's no point asking it. Or, And they don't realize from a political reporter's accountability perspective, like political accountability, you ask the question so you can report it wasn't answered, right? Sometimes it's not all – Sports reporters get accused of playing access journalism, a game where, well, say nice enough things so you make sure you don't alienate people. Right. But the, every reporter in some ways, like if you're a reporter as opposed to a columnist, you're, you've got to be fair. You can ask tough, tough questions, but they've got to be fair. And you're only going to alienate people by doing a bad job. You're only, no one's going to disrespect you in politics um, for asking tough questions. They're only going to disrespect you for being unfair.
2: Right. Um, Did you get a sense for, I know you may not want to name names, but did you get a sense for, I'm guessing some players are more sensitive than others.
0: I I don't feel like I, I've spent so little time interviewing players. My, again, 98% of my coverage of sports has been related to like, I covered the building of that new stadium, new football stadium from it's uh, new. It's not that new anymore from, from the death of the, from the day that actually the Winnipeg that that what's now Bell MTS place was, was, was open. That was really the day that the football stadium debate started in Winnipeg. And a lot about the funding deal for that. um, The original reporting about the building of MTS center, Bell MTS place predated my work as a, uh, as a political reporter, but those, um, primarily my work covering sports is involving numbers and government dollars and sponsorships and not the players. So when I, a little bit of actual sports coverage and let's face it, the vast majority of my the CBC stories I did during the playoffs last, last year yeah. were uh, stories about fans and stories about places like quirky stuff. And I had fun stuff planned for the first round of St. Louis, but I got sick and I couldn't go both me and Jason Bell from the free press got sick and didn't for diff- and didn't get on that plane to St. Louis. Really? Yeah. I can't remember what Jay had, but I had a terrible case of bronchitis. I couldn't even sleep. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't do anything. It was just – I missed it. I had cool stuff planned.
2: Well, um, cool. on the Jets-centric podcast, like our like the Jets coach, Paul Maurice, we actually don't like excuses. We don't use excuses. Uh, but if you want to list any other reasons that might have uh, diminished your performance last year, you're more than welcome to go
0: on. So, Performance um, last year or <laughs> this last season?
2: Oh, just this last season. I'm just trying to make an excuses joke, that's all. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I Well,
0: I actually couldn't. get. Honestly, I had to cancel a trip to St. Louis. I've never been to St. Louis. Anywhere I've never been is a place I want to go. And St. Louis has a bizarre and interesting food culture. I was really interested to try to sneak away to Cahokia, which is this like huge, one of the largest indigenous settlements in North America, pre-European. They had like 25,000 people there. Monk's Mound, this big old pyramid still exists. I wanted to see this stuff. This is not, people think St. Louis – i had i was gonna the parallels socioeconomically and politically between winnipeg and st louis they're immense i wanted to get into that a little bit i was planning on doing that i hope we go back there next playoffs but something tells me
2: well i think everyone listening to this right now is cheering for that to happen because i know at least speaking for myself uh, i could use a little bit more than questions that result in the answer of uh you know giving 110 percent or uh you know stick to the game plan kind of cliches but so. when i was
0: in the scrums of the players the few times i was i mostly deferred to the people who had to do that every day so i didn't want to like when i'm at when i was at city hall for years and somebody would come in guns a blazing and ask a really stupid question of the mayor or somebody else i'd get annoyed i didn't want to be that guy asking stupid really stupid annoying questions the only good question is uh you know, there was that weird time during the Vegas series where um, Flurry he he, uh, he he played with Wheeler's ear. Yeah, he
2: he, he tickled someone's ear, I think, or he wet wheeled him. I think was the yeah, allegation and he, and
0: I asked, you know, on a scale of you know, a scale of zero to Brad Marshan, how weird was that? Yeah, and he actually looked at me and addressed me and answered that one with a smile. I was like, okay, yeah. Blake Wheeler mm-hmm. actually was amused. So there we go. Uh, this is an area I'm not. Your listeners will know, the ones who pay attention to sports, that this is an area where I have a great deal of authority. I have no authority on this because I've spent very little time doing actual sports journalism. Um, but the, it doesn't, the culture of the NHL player is very different than the culture of other pro athletes. But even athletes, yeah, they're like movie stars. They don't have to say anything, they don't have to give themselves to you. They're not as wrapped up and I don't feel like they go through as much. Like in my time as an entertainment reporter on occasion, I did, you know, some of the biggest names in music were among the most gracious. Like it's, you don't get to have a decades long career working if you're a jerk. Like I remember talking to David Bowie once and he was like, oh, thank you for taking the time to speak to me. I'm like, yeah, you're David Bowie and I work for the Winnipeg Free Press. Okay. Let's like, you're not... I'm not doing you a favor. You're taking up, you're wanting to sell a concert or an album or whatever it was. Um, And just sometimes these big, big musicians were very, very gracious. They knew the game, the late Anthony Bourdain, who had been a journalist too, um, was one of the most gracious interviews ever. He was like, do you need anything else? What else do you need? Did you get what you need? He was so concerned. Mm -hmm. He knew the game exactly. And he knew to be, he could be himself and, and, He could be helpful. None of this is about sports, but the thing is, athletes are like the biggest movie stars, where they're afraid of giving up tidbits. Um, They almost they don't want anything to distract them, especially in their performance level. And God knows what's said on the ice between the players sometimes to drive them crazy. I can only imagine.
2: Uh, Was um, is it different when you interview uh, management? What's it like? Uh, I've with had coaches, no ex- and
0: with coaches and such. Uh, again, I'm only in a came in the big, I'm in the big, you know, press room with all the other reporters. Typically, not asking many questions of um, of of Paul Maurice himself. Uh, I think this year the only significant thing I did is I was a guy. I was a person who went marched right over to Bennington, mm-hmm. placed myself in front of it, and said, "Okay, well, I didn't break that." story and so much of it being a story but this is the news of the day answer the questions about your old tweets and he kind of gave a half ass oh you know i was i was young and everyone's done something stupid and he moved on yeah and then i tried to follow it up and the uh pr person for st louis would have none of that he answered your question i'm like well to a political reporter no he didn't but
2: yeah you know, at least yeah. he answered
0: once he it knew- seems like the power
2: dynamic like you were saying related so, so Bowman, for whatever reason, uh, the mayor will will answer questions for forty minutes. But the dynamic is power dynamic is much different. Where reporters or journalists in the sports field are really ultimately at the mercy of these PR or con guys for the teams. Yeah,
0: but that's not unusual. That's not unique to professional sport. That happens in politics at at certain levels and in certain jurisdictions. Not every mayor. Like to be fair, Sam Cates would sit there and answer questions. Uh, he'd be, it would be interestingly, um, kids could be, could on occasion was more combative than Bowman, but I've seen Bowman. If you ask if you get combative with him, he'll just, I'm gonna let you finish, he'll just sort of take a big step back and you know <laughs> make you into the bad guy, and that's fair, completely fair tactic. Um, the in all manner, I mean some like in business reporting if you're not from um publication that is important to a publicly traded company they may not even bother returning your calls i thought i was talking to some other reporters about the Binnington situation for those of you who don't mm-hmm. remember he was just he had made insensitive tweets years prior to him becoming this goalie phenomenon out of nowhere or seemingly out of nowhere yeah and the i was actually surprised they put him up at all they could have because for our – CBC's journalistic standards and practices, we didn't report the story at all until Binnington had his say. Other media had said these tweets said this. Some other media outlets went with it. We weren't going to report anything until we had Bennington. So tactically, they could have – You know, we might have still reported something. If he had the opportunity to say it and he didn't take the opportunity, then it would have been fair for us to go with it. But if they didn't put him up at all, I don't even know if we would have published that story.
2: Right, right. Um yeah, that's interesting. I know I, and he ended up, of course, uh making his march to the to the Stanley Cup championship and everything this Yeah, year, I
0: don't so. think it affected him. And let's be frank, that sort of was dug up by a former Winnipegger. Um Oh really? Yeah, cool. it was Paul Gackle who uh covers uh the San Jose Sharks who dug that up. Yeah. That those old tweets up. And or did it, someone
2: send it to him? I would imagine that there's people looking to get. Guys no to idea. I have.
0: I haven't talked to Gackle about it, but it was Mike McIntyre at the Free Press who first reported that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh well, very minor story in the St. Louis. Let's face it. No one's going to go back and put an asterisk on asterisk. Excuse me, on the St. Louis Blues Stanley Cup win because of you know five ten year old tweets that Jordan Biddington made.
2: Yeah, I, obvious. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's going to be lost to the winds of history uh, of that story. But I'm sure that insensitive tweet will continue to be made by him. Uh, oh, athletes. So
0: if you want to go back and look, you know, I've been on Twitter since '09, and I'm, I've made stupid ones or ones that could be interpreted as insane. Everyone said social media, you know, like like they say with Trump, there's always a tweet. There's always a tweet from his pre-presidential days that seems to be a commentary on his presidential days everyone's got something stupid unless they've gone back and scrubbed it. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think leaving the world of, uh, leaving the world of the, 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 um, uh, the, the temporality or the non-permanence, uh, I don't think we've ever said those words in the podcast before, uh, but, uh, leaving that world, I want to, um, I wanted to ask you something that you are, uh, an expert on, which is, which is local politics, uh, and especially civic issues. Um, because True North is obviously the team that brought the Jets back and yeah. we all love them. Uh, but uh, just I thought it'd be helpful to have uh, to have some of us Jets fans kind of get a little bit of a, be- a better sense about what uh, what True North is doing. And uh, I think how they interplay with uh, local provincial and, uh, and city government.
0: Yeah, I've written, I've written about this quite a bit at the Free Press and at CBC just every year, city budget comes out, and that's time to just remind people what government subsidies, tax breaks, and direct funding mechanisms go into the support for not just the jets, but the bombers and the gold eyes. And I guess, indirectly, Valor, I suppose now, because it's same umbrella as the bombers. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's often when Ever those stories get published, I always get the feedback on. You never write about all the incredible, you know, economic and cultural benefits of having pro hockey. I go, you know what? There's 364 days a year where I think that's acknowledged. Simply making it public is not is just so people know what actually goes in. And there are a number of mechanisms. If you want to talk about the Jets and you care most about the Jets, uh, there's MTS Center. There, Bell MTS Place. Excuse me. Old habits die hard. There is a on there is a business tax break from the city of Winnipeg. That's worth a little bit of money. In the grand scheme of things, is that keeping the team here? No, it's just a break. There's a property tax break where the arena is portioned, basically the the portioned as public space, green space, recreation space. So that instead of as a commercial business, that tax break is worth around 800 grand a year. I don't have the figures in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, we can take a break and I can go back and haul out my latest story from earlier this year, and I probably should have punched that up. There is a entertainment funding tax rebate. That's like the least important of, yes, technically, so when you pay your entertainment tax, the city then turns around and gives that back to the Jets and the Bombers and the Goldons. And that isn't those are, that's on ticket sales
2: and that's partially and that's basically the idea of the entertainment tax is more is more to tax like your old job like the the traveling entertainers and stuff well right? it is used that to be the idea?
0: even movie theaters everything used to be subject to this entertainment tax in the old days mm-hmm. and those taxes that revenue wouldn't exist if the jets didn't exist so it's kind of not really a subsidy in a sense it's just their ability to add a surcharge on their ticket, and it looks like a municipal tax as opposed to them just adding a surcharge, but it really is a surcharge they get. So it's a public funding mechanism, but it's not actually a direct subsidy the way the property tax break, the portioning is on, on the arena land and the business tax break. So the business tax break is purely municipal. and The property tax break is municipal and provincial. And the entertainment funding tax rebate is municipal, city of Winnipeg. But the fourth one and the big one is the revenue from the charcoal.
2: Okay, if that's the uh, quote-unquote uh, urban casino, It's right. the
0: casino, yeah. And it was a deal struck when the NHL come, came back between the province and True North. And there's an interesting funding formula over there. So basically, there's a minimum amount if there's a revenue over a certain amount, five and a half million dollars. There's one funding split if it's less than that splits are something that you get, that get done in the concert industry all the time. I'll explain a split pretty simply or as best I can. You might be a venue. You've got a venue, it's called, you know, Mike's Cultural Center. And uh, you want to book an act and you kind of worry that you might take a bath on it. So you cut a deal where, you know what, I get the vast majority of the revenue on the first X number of tickets sold. But if I sell, this place sells out, the band and its agent or the band gets everything above that right so there is the potential for true north to get a lot more money if there is a lot more revenue at the casinos but the idea behind this is that the canadian dollar goes up and goes down and the economy changes a lot and winnipeg is a marginal market size wise for the nhl
2: but people will always want to
0: gamble well, it's not that – I don't know if the people always want to gamble, but you create this revenue source for the NHL to create stability, and $5.5 million, I mean, you know, that's that's most of a Tyler Myers contract. Well, the one that was and not the one that will be signed by the time this podcast is out, whether he signs in Vancouver or who knows where. But, um, <laughs> you know, um, the, the an average of $5.5 million – they don't open the books up. It took quite a bit of like hammering on the NDP government at the time to release that funding formula. Like, look, you guys have a deal here to share public, effectively gaming revenue with, with, with the pro sports team. We want to know what that deal is.
2: So why do you think they were hesitant to share that information?
0: Well, governments are always hesitant to share information about business arrangements they have with private entities. But in this case, they eventually agreed because True North agreed. And True North is never crazy about this story. They always want to stress that all the economic spinoffs. Now, the province, here's the thing. The province gets all the money back very, very quickly from all kinds of taxes that the Jets bring in. The city doesn't get that much back because what does the city get? They get property taxes and they get business taxes they don't have that many different sources of revenue. So the city of Winnipeg as a corporate entity, not as the Winnipeg. Like Winnipeg gets a lot from the Jets. People have something to watch and follow and have fun watching all all winter. Um, but the city of Winnipeg as a as an entity, as a corporate entity, does not receive much revenue from the Winnipeg Jets. They just don't. Right. And but the provinces, the province is getting that money right back. And then we get into another area of funding that's similar to the entertainment funding tax. And this is something called tax increment financing. And here's where we go down a very nerdy podcasty rabbit hole,
2: right? Can I give it a shot here? Basically, okay. basically, um, the idea being that, let's say that in the worst part of town, I build like a new mansion or a new uh, business that that I believe is going to be a ma- increased property values all over the neighborhood. Basically, the idea is, is that I want to be protected from increased property taxes. Yeah, I mean,
0: so true North is. Square, various components of it are covered by tax increment financing or tips. And basically, yeah, the idea is if I'm in the worst area of town and I take a run-down old house and I replace it with a totally awesome condo tower, the tax, or an apartment tower, excuse me, because the I'm going to be paying, it'll be assessed at a much higher rate and I'll be paying a lot more taxes. Well, you know what? Maybe instead of, me paying the higher taxes maybe those that additional revenue gets plowed into streetscaping improvements in the area or maybe i get it back in the form of a grant to help cover the cost of what i'm doing maybe it's a full subsidy maybe i get all that money back maybe i don't tax increment financing mechanisms of various kinds have been very effective in different parts of the united states in helping build up blighted areas of inner cities in south winnipeg south of portage avenue it's not a blighted area per se, but without the tax increment financing mechanism, True North Square isn't that possible for True North real estate arm to engage in. How
2: normal is it to in the city of Winnipeg to receive this tax increment financing
0: for government fund uh, for
2: people for us? Not even a similar project; it could be bigger or smaller. Typically,
0: tax increment financing has been used in. Winnipeg's downtown to fund residential housing, to increase the housing base. The theory being if more people are living downtown, then you can help kickstart, create a critical mass where then other businesses open up and whatnot. But don't forget the football stadium. Yeah. So the old Canada stadium, originally Winnipeg Stadium, bombers didn't pay any property. Winnipeg Football Club did not pay any property taxes. Let's be clear. Winnipeg Football Club is not a community owned team. They say that it isn't. The public doesn't own shares in it. It's a nonprofit organization. It's just like the West End Cultural Center or the Royal Winnipeg Ballet or.
2: So are you trying to tell me that that's the reason why I haven't gotten my co op rebate check, but Bombers' version of
0: that? Yeah, like you don't own the Bombers. The city doesn't own the Bombers. They used to talk about community owned teams like the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, are shares in that. Green Bay Packers, are shares in that. Those are community owned teams. The Bombers are a nonprofit organization. Now, as a nonprofit organization, they have a different structure than a privately owned company, but and they have a much more transparent uh, and transparently elected or appointed board than, than they used to. So they have, they just shouldn't be calling themselves as the, a you know, a fight I used to have with some of my colleagues in, in media, mm-hmm. pointing out that this is not a community-owned team. It's just, it's just something they call themselves because they're not a, a they're not a run by a they're not held by a private owner or a private corporation. Well, actually, technically, a nonprofit organization is a private corporation. It's just not. It's one designed to continue the football team. Now, the point, important thing is. After a bailout of the Bombers in the late 90s, after the Reimbold years, Jeff Reimbold years. We remember. The Bombers <laughs> didn't have to pay property taxes on that stadium. So the theory was in the super complicated deal to build what's now IG Field. Additional tax revenue paid by the new owners of the Canada, Canada Stadium site, that's Cadillac, Fairview, and, and uh, Shindico. Additional tax revenue would then flow in and then help pay back the loan on the new stadium, which is great as long as there's actual development.
2: Well, no, hold on, is at the time of this recording, um, there is not a lot going on right now, but we have faith that when But there
0: is. I mean, a lot of things changed in the retail environment since that happened. Uh, That old Target store came in and then it's been repurposed as a 247 in touch and there's a a second uh, pad in there that's being developed. But also, it's a misnomer that the province has completely written down this loan the reality is there will be more development there. Like, Shinneco and Cadillac Fairview didn't buy this to lose money. They bought this to develop it. It's just been a challenge given that you then had the city of Winnipeg approve the Seasons of Tuxedo Development, the IKEA, with $22 million of public subsidies. Yes. Right, so they shot
2: themselves in the foot a little bit there because they were standing to make a lot of money back on the uh, on the Polo Park area you're talking
0: about. I'm, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that maybe IKEA was a mistake, but I remember... Former Mayor Sam Cates and former Premier Gary Dewar were really happy to be the people who could say, we brought IKEA to Winnipeg. I, IKEA didn't come to Winnipeg because this market was so attractive to them. They did because effectively, to my understanding, they were presented with a real estate deal that couldn't fail. And the, the geniuses who basically did the land assembly there put together a plan where effectively they couldn't lose money. Plus, there was about $26 million in infrastructure work that needed to be there and the city and province underwrote 22 million of that, and I'm talking about road widenings and water and sewer and drainage. So yeah, I mean, at the time, I remember questioning the former former premier and the former mayor. It's like, so where is it? They used to say, oh yeah, we're under what program did you give a? Under which policy yeah. piece did you give 22 million dollars for a retail complex? And they're like, oh, it's right here in what was then planned Winnipeg, the city's planning. Blueprint, and they're like, "Well, here it says that we can accelerate existing infrastructure plans." I'm like, "Where does it say we need 12 lanes of Keniston to at a giant mall? Like, I don't. Where is it in plan Winnipeg that shows a 12 lane stretch of Kenniston? And of course, it was just made up on the fly. There was never any plan. But you could argue that that's done well for the city. That that's a good development. Ultimately, there's people. This is an issue that transcends left and right in politics. There's people. And left and right is too simplistic a notion. There's many different axes, really. But there are people who would question the desire, that would question public funding for private businesses. It doesn't seem like retail is an area that should be publicly funded. You right. can then move yeah. that and say maybe pro sports should be publicly funded. But all over the U.S., cities pay underwrite the cost of brand new arenas. Bell and T.S. Place got built privately for what was you know 100 million dollars 130 million and change um and there was a lot of government money that went into it but it wasn't an incredibly it's not like what Edmonton funded in their in their new hockey arena yeah. or what the owners of the Calgary Flames tried to like wrestle the city into approving and Calgary you know Calgary is Calgary didn't go for it
2: so that's a question a bigger question that I wanted to get at actually with you you're kind of bringing it up where so the city has had not too much success, perhaps, yet with it, with the tax increment financing you're describing uh, for the new football stadium. Um, it sounds like it's more promising, I think, with the one downtown with True North Except Square.
0: that South, Win- South Portage as a neighborhood, and that's the official name of the neighborhood, South Portage, is not a blighted area. So... It's not really
2: well, and they also kept it that way. Not to cut you off, but I wanted also yeah. to ask you about that because it was highly publicized uh, by you guys at CBC that the res that the, the uh, there was perhaps a misunderstanding, was it about how about a quota of a quote affordable housing? Yeah,
0: and not, and that was really never part. The former NDP government was under a lot of pressure from the school boards to stop doing t- tiffs tax because right. they felt this is revenue we're not getting, not realizing. TIF projects, that's revenue, that didn't exist. Tax money that didn't exist without these developments. Also, they didn't want to be seen as providing corporate welfare to businesses, so they threw in this affordable housing component to TIFs. Now, TIFs work best when you have the highest, biggest possible difference between the existing use of any piece of property and the next use. So going from a surface parking lot that is actually an empty patch of weeds that isn't used for anything to a giant skyscraper. You want to have the greatest gulf and the most possible revenue so you can have the biggest difference in the property taxes you were paying before the improvement and the property taxes you're paying after the improvement. Which, so,
2: is, what, which is what True North Square is built on. It was an old surface-level parking lot, yes. Yeah,
0: at which the yeah, end you wanted to go to – so if you put an affordable housing compo- component, the former NDP government could have been criticized widely for existing for, – for insisting upon affordable housing as part of it, the TIF, because then you're reducing, you're reducing the potential inc- increase in the potential gains in tax revenue. If you want to do social housing, and let's talk about the affordable housing, this isn't this wasn't even social housing. This was just market rent housing, housing that wasn't luxury or premium premium housing. Right. We're talking about housing that people who are of limited economic means, socioeconomic means, would not be able to afford. We're not talking about places where single mothers, who, trying to get a job, trying to, would be able to afford. We're talking about market rent housing. If the this, if the, if governments want to invest in social housing, they should invest in social housing and not tack it on to another program. Right. Theoretically. Now, I'm offering. I'm saying what they, what they should do or what they shouldn't do. I'm getting dangerously into the territory of making policy prescriptions. But the theory, I'm explaining what the. So you basically get people on the right and people on the left, the taxpayer watchdogs at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and then the left to center activists at the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives will both agree and go, why are we putting public funding into these things? But there's the big picture in the idea of critical mass history, Winnipeg, downtown, immense downtown. Downtown used to be Main Street going north. And when Eaton's was built, it was a big, huge statement saying, wow, we're actually going to stretch here on Portage Avenue. And then the Bay going even further west. Next thing you know, the old Bay Holdings, which is South Portage, and the old downtown, which is North Main, you have this giant dog leg of a downtown in a city that isn't really big enough to have the critical mass to support it. Mm -hmm. Then like in every city, a big flight to the suburbs in terms of population and various attempts to revitalize downtown starting in the late 60s with the... uh, Centennial Center Complex, which is the concert hall and the museum and the planetarium and the civic center complex, which, which is was all
2: the North Main section of it. Yeah, and right? the city hall and
0: yeah. and the parkade and the public safety building, all both those latter two about to come down, and then there was the uh, the 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 Winnipeg Square and the Trizec plan I originally called for two towers. The second one is finally underway as a residential tower decades later. Right. And, yeah. And
2: one day, maybe they'll allow people to walk across the intersection. That's a common, uh, that's, that's what mo- we'll, we'll remind most of our listeners about how that's been talked about recently.
0: Exactly. And then Portage Place in the 80s, various streetscaping improvements. So when Two North Real Estate Wing comes down, and we're building them and their partners. They've, you know, glasshouse condos got built and the, uh, the building with Alt Hotel got built. First, that's the, the center point development north of Portage, and then two north Square south of there. There's a lot of very large towers that have been built down there um, that wouldn't have existed without this public funding. So there's this – then they've got this huge – assuming once you actually have people living in the area, people living in an area add a lot more than businesses. Point blank, arenas and, and stadia, stadiums, if you prefer to sound not like, <laughs> not like a pedant, is – They don't really revitalize downtowns. They're dead zones when there's no game going on. And the notion that they are are a focal point, like if you walk around downtown Minneapolis around the baseball stadium at night when there's no game on, like a few blocks away, there's a lot of life there because downtown Minneapolis is great. But those venues themselves don't. What what revitalizes downtowns are people and people living there. So the residential components to everything they're doing there, particularly Glass House and the new residential tower that's part of phase two of Trunor Square, those are gonna have the most effects on downtown because when that many people in a tower live in a place, they want services and that changes the mix. You never, socioeconomically healthy cities have a mix of poor people, middle-class people and wealthy people. They're all on top of each other and they all learn from each other. Wealthy people are reminded of their privilege and people who are of limited means see that there are people who are not like them. And everybody can be in the same place. I'm sounding idealistic, yeah. but it's important for downtown to have a mix of people. You're never gonna sanitize downtown and move away its problems. Winnipeg has many socioeconomic issues. Now I'm ranting, but where well,
2: one, one of the things I wanted to ask you about though is the fact that if Winnipeg has like kind of an admittedly large downtown, which I had never thought about before, um, it's just a, a critical of mass
0: buildings. is harder, harder to, harder to revitalize organically and, and true north
2: with their developments are all their, can you tell us where their developments are? Because they're not at Portage and Maine. They're not on North Maine. There's all a little the bit,
0: and, a lot of it. And they're building some class A office space and they're, you know, they've got a fifth tower happening right now.
2: Are they poaching tenants from, from Portage in well, Maine?
0: Port, yeah. Some tenants moved from Portage and Maine, but one of the partners in there are the Richardson's who own a tower. A very well-known tower called the Richardson building. So yeah, if I'm, if I'm the owner of 201 Portage, the former TD center back in the day, former Canwest building back in the day, if I'm the owners, the Regina based owners of that building. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm like, wow, I'm losing tenants. There's only so many head offices in Winnipeg, only so many people who need class A office space. Right. So, but this is the way it's, it's, it, this is the way it's moving. And the, the, market will adjust. There may be some empty space. Let me
2: ask a different, let me ask a different, a more practical question here. If I'm a server at High's Steakhouse and I used to have all the NHL teams coming and staying at the Fairmont at the North main, or sorry, the uh Portage main section of downtown.
0: And then soon should, we'll, should I be
2: looking, should I be uh, keep putting my uh, job uh, resume out there somewhere thinking maybe that the they're gonna be, a, gonna be moving closer to the rink.
0: At Chop and the Chop Steakhouse and which will be inside the uh, the um, Sutton Place Hotel.
2: Right. I'm just thinking because with the new Alt Hotel, right? That's that's a likely destination for uh, I've Alt- heard rumors anyways. This well, is just me I right don't anyways.
0: have no way, I'm not gonna track in rumors, forgive me. Um I,
2: but things shift, right? Like you're saying, things, things
0: shift, shift in places. You know, also, hotels will develop relationships with teams and travel agents and whatnot, and that's not an area I know much about. Um, but I will say that it isn't. When True North points to the, they're making hundreds of millions of dollars in investment in downtown Winnipeg. The subsidies they've received have only been a small part of that. So, all of anyone listening to this podcast in its entirety. Well, here that I'm basically saying, yes, they've received some help, but I'm not criticizing them. This is, if you are a government and somebody is dangling, saying, we want to build $400 million worth of, $500 million worth of office towers and, and residential towers, we just want a little bit of help with that. That's not really that much of a public subsidy. It's just, it's easy, it's what people on the social program side people are trying to get housing for people and mental health care and health care and all kinds of programming for, they all like look how quickly these things come together why can't we get this but
2: there's a lot of hands out there asking
0: because but the capital population. is but capital is and this is one of the things that people don't realize people often mix up capital spending spending on buildings bridges roads versus programming operating spending capital spending is one time It's easy for a government to say, here, I helped you pay for this. We have a ribbon cutting, and they can always point to it and say, we helped build this. But operating money is ongoing. Operating is hard.
2: Hmm. So because one of the questions I was curious about is, uh, do you remember the exit interviews we had, uh, all the players were fairly grumpy, basically, but one of the reporters asked Andrew Kopp, uh, you know, he's 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 currently a restricted free agent. Mr. Kopp, what uh, will you will, are you thinking about taking a hometown discount to play in Winnipeg? Was the question asked, and he, um, in a, in as many words, he basically said said in all fairness, no, because he's you know he's looking to maximize things. But what I'm curious about was the idea of a hometown discount and whether True North is giving a hometown discount to the city of Winnipeg or the people of Winnipeg, or is it more vice versa? The
0: owners of the Jets wouldn't be in this solely as a business proposition. They would like to make money. Yes, they're business people, but nobody gets into, I shouldn't say nobody, very few people get into an enterprise, no one's forcing them to build five five towers in downtown Winnipeg. That's beyond what the core mandate of running a hockey team is. But they are ensuring that there's a revenue there are revenue streams there that are gonna be well beyond hockey and, and well beyond you know five and a half million dollars on average a year from for the for the Shark Club. So and keep in mind I have never had a conversation with Mark Chipman about this. I've never had a conversation with anybody in the true north executive at length outside of like scrum interviews so these are i'm not going to get when i said nobody gets into things i don't know what's in people's brains but it's Ken, not i know I, I don't
2: think i'm misquoting this but yeah. i think kevin donnelly from true north said something to the effect of what you've already brought up which is just that it's if when you're dealing when you're talking about a capital investment true north or or, or anybody of those means they're not just looking at investment opportunities in winnipeg or in manitoba they're actually looking at opportunities all around the world north america uh, and and so actually which which is a testament it does he was arguing that it shows some 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 local boosterism that they choose to do it in winnipeg
0: of course it's boosterism they choose to like they like they're not i mean they're not looking at doing anything elsewhere it's in their own best interest to have the area around their hockey arena being as vibrant as possible. And how do you get that vibrancy? Yeah, office buildings are great. And a hockey arena is great. And a mall with a casino is fine. But people living there, that's the biggest vibrancy. People make neighborhoods safe. People, all kinds of people. And why do people feel safe in Manhattan? Because there's so many people everywhere all the time. Why do you feel safe walking in downtown Toronto? Because there's people all the time. Why does Winnipeg feel unsafe? like on a Saturday in the summer, downtown, because there aren't as many people. Now, there's a lot more people than there used to be. If you go back to the late 90s, it was a freaking ghost town. It's already better for a lot of other reasons, some reasons. So when I said earlier that a hockey arena doesn't revitalize a downtown, I mean that. But all the other things that True North has done will eventually, once there are people, more people living in those buildings, yeah, it, they can't help but to, unless those people actually, you know, there's a certain kind of person in Winnipeg that'll live in an air-conditioned or heated building and then go into their air-conditioned basement, get into a car, and people forget that artists, which owns, or uh, artist Rate, which has uh, Winnipeg Square and the building above it and is building the new tower, they're building residential units there too, so it's not just true north events uh, investing in residential units on broadway and on on assiniboine avenue there's two new residential towers
2: absolutely so
0: there is and for there hadn't been any high-rise residential buildings built in downtown winnipeg since the late 80s up until a few years ago there's approximately you know 25 years of no activity on that front
2: so basically what you're telling our listeners is um, if I can draw some conclusions for them, it sounds like basically a healthy downtown is uh, is what Mark Chipman is after. Uh, so therefore, a healthy downtown is good for True North and yeah. it's good for the Jets.
0: Yeah, there is the notion of enlightened self-interest. Like you do something that's good for your own business and for the community at large. Uh, yeah, but there is nothing wrong with running a profitable business and making money. This is what our, well, like it or not, this is the foundation of the economy of the society. Um, the, If that is a horrifically capitalist statement, then I think people are just not, Paying attention to what they're looking at outside their own doors every day. I, I know. I when you bring up
2: Minneapolis, I recall the new football stadium that looks like uh, that looks like uh, not the Death Star, but the other things from Star Wars that uh, kill the good guys. It it looks like a spaceship, but they I believe spent about a billion dollars. Yeah, of Yeah, you public
0: money build on. these giant complexes in the U.S. and they're done often with just entirely public funds. We haven't done something like that in Winnipeg. You now, granted. We do it in our own ways, right? Mostly public funding went into the football stadium at the University of Manitoba site. Um, so, Although we did
2: get federal government money, right? Which is... No. No? No. I thought that was the whole point. No,
0: federal money only went into the... Uh, the feds only put money into the improvements to the recreational amenities on um, at the University of Manitoba. Ah. Very, very little federal money went into that project. And... They said the federal government at the time, Harper government at the time, said we don't fund professional sport facilities, yet they funded 45% of Tim Horton's field in Hamilton because it was going to be used for the Pan Am Games. Right. For four weeks, you know, and, two weeks uh, for the Pan Am Games and for the Par- Pan for the uh, Paralympic Pan Am Games. And I guess there might
2: have been some more votes uh, or some more swing seats. I guess there's way there. more swing so. seats in Hamilton and <laughs> Toronto
0: in a federal election than there are in Winnipeg. It was a little rich to say to Winnipeg and to and to Regina, we're not going to pay for your new football stadium, but we're going to give it to Hamilton because of the Pan Am Games. That was the fact that more people here weren't upset about that one was surprising to me.
2: Right. Well, um, I don't doubt that some people were very upset. But uh, but uh, as someone who did help build that stadium, uh, don't shoot me. But uh, don't worry, just the approaches. I do think that it's a pretty nice stadium as far as when you actually get into it. To oh, watch. it's a fine
0: stadium. It's a f- absolutely fine stadium as a fan to watch that. It's just amazing. As a person who reported a lot about the deficiencies in that stadium, it was just amazing.
2: Which I did not do. The totally
0: water was draining off the decks into the building. How does that happen? They had to tear up all the concrete within the first few years. There wasn't enough concrete to support loads. The guys like carrying beer on the little pulleys like had to not put the most amount of beer possible. There was a vent in one of the washrooms that was venting into a kitchen. There were crawl spaces that weren't insulated. It was it was as if it was I still remember that first exhibition game in June when it opened, and there were basically still like there was still construction material lying around. I remember tripping over 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 something in the over some yeah over a pulley of some kind or no it was it was those like um, hydraulic uh, like a forklift, forklift. Yeah, yeah a forklift left, and there was a, a asphalt machine running and along the sidewalk along Chancellor Matheson that was putt put, putting by itself after the game. And I remember I was there with Sean Cavan. I worked for the free press at the time and Sean worked for uh, CBC and I was pissed off with myself for, I with my tickets and I brought Sean to the game and he's like, I see he's taking notes all the time. I'm like, damn it. Sean's seeing all the incomplete things here. Yeah. Like he's going to report this. So I have to report this. I remember being really upset with myself, you know, he's a friend of mine, but we're rivals. I didn't want it to know stuff. <laughs> and, um,
2: and then you walked up to the putt-putt putting machine, and, and so we're just long. weird.
0: It was—it was almost the ridiculous. This is what we call in West Broadway a ride home. Well, it was a—it wasn't no, it wasn't even a ride. It was an ass. It was a functioning. <laughs> do you realize how dangerous it is that there was like, you know, that was the exhibition game where the bombers do like, uh, anyone who has a ticket, you could bring another person for right. free.
2: Are you talking yeah. about the actual machine that like chops up and like starts to spread the asphalt? It was a little.
0: Or... It was a small like asphalt. Portable asphalt paving machine yeah. about the size of a kitchen table, yeah. and it like yeah, it could be very dangerous. But it was sitting there put, put, putting by itself, and it was to me emblematic of the rush to complete that stadium in time. And uh, uh, it was just amazing to me. it was just like this is crazy. Like you like the, I don't know what workplace health and safety violation involves. You know, twenty thousand people walking past a, a a a functioning asphalt machine with nobody
2: at it. I have some experience in that field. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that uh, your concerns are very warranted.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like nothing bad happened, but it was absolutely. um,
2: uh, So, so, so um, uh, speaking of stadiums being built, and I guess it sounds like this was kind of our version of the Sochi Olympics, I guess, in the end, we can Kind of look at we can how, kind
0: of look at it yeah
2: how something was We're, i i hope that they fixed all the problems and that we don't have
0: uh well it's endlessly frustrating issues like, on that one thing i want to say it's i find it highly interesting amazing for people like if you live in north gordon or, or or garden city and you're really really far from the arena yeah a stadium excuse me and you preferred polo park because it was closer i get that but when people say it was difficult to get there there was traffic chaos when Polo Park opened, right. and the stadium at Polo People have figured it out. You take the park and ride down or the bus down, like that rapid transit station they've built on the north side of the stadium is the most efficient thing. It's amazing how many people they can load in and out there when pe- if people have not used it. You're talking about at... At IG Field. Yeah, at IG Field, yeah. So the stadium station, like that little spur line, which was the first piece of the Southwest Transitway second leg that they opened, that little spur line that... Bohemia I believe, Bohemia Trail that comes off of Pamela to the stadium. It's a and then you've got this big ramp and they can unload buses and load buses very very quickly. It's exactly the kinds of thing, the kinds of huge rapid transit stations or bus rapid transit stations you see in South American and European cities that utilize bus rapid transit in a major way at rush hour. But this is on a, even on a larger scale. But there are so many ways to get to that stadium when people say, Oh, I don't want to go there. It's this notion of, I want to drive my car there. I don't know why anyone would drive their car
2: to that stadium. I was going to say exactly the same thing. I'm a, I'm a pretty big supporter of the new uh, uh, Valor FC uh, football team or uh, football team. Yes. Sorry. I'm calling it football. Uh, But yeah. Why would you ever drive Uh, the, you, you take the bus there. It's just much better for your, it's just much better for, for a whole bunch of reasons.
0: You and can driving is a just a but stress even if you thing. do that park and ride, getting, getting out of there, you get on that bus on the way out, and it's it's uh, it's about 17 minutes back to the one on Taylor if that's the one you choose. Like, it's just not hard to get in and out of. It was chaos the first couple of years, as people figured it out, but.
2: So, so I want to ask one more question on stadiums uh, or Stadii, as I think you called it, um, and then uh, we're going to finish off with some some lighter stuff. I mean, sorry, the actual serious content of the show. Uh, but I wanted to ask you: the MTS Center or MTS Place has been around since two
0: thousand
2: four, and we're just talking about new stadiums uh, being built, and stadiums have lifespans. Okay, you're you're
0: getting into dangerous territory, but go go ahead.
2: So, um. Uh, do you have a do you, Do you have a Do you have a sense? Uh, are we going to be going to watch Jets games at Bell MTS Place for a long time yet, or are our plans in the? way I think s-
0: the plan B? I'm going to give you a middle ground statement on that. I think it's entirely plausible that by 2030, we'll be having an arena discussion
2: again. Which now, judging by average lifetime of most uh, arenas and stadiums, 2030 is actually 26
0: years old at that point,
2: which is actually. To, to be starting the conversation that actually sets the Bell MTS place up or whatever they're calling it at that time, uh, to be, uh, to be a fairly lengthy,
0: lengthy lifetime for that stadium. Yeah. So skip the dishes arena, uh, will be, <laughs> who knows if they'll be around Netflix arena. Um, what, winnipeg company great west life as long as you're not
2: calling it uh donald trump uh fascism dome i'm gonna be happy with it so
0: and now you're getting into territory that would make my bosses nervous but um i
2: apologize to your bosses there you go <laughs> uh
0: the there will most definitely be a some kind of arena debate at that point true north is making Amenity improvements, to the stadium all the time, the concourse changes they made,
2: which they're required to by the terms of the provincial uh, funding agreement. If I'm not mistaken, uh, they had to spend the they have to spend some of the money from their. It's the in campus.
0: their own self-interest that the fans feel like they've. It's a pretty narrow concourse, so when they took out a couple of the impediments to moving around a couple of seasons ago, that that made a big difference. In in like if you go to the building in Tampa Bay, you walk around that thing. It holds yeah. twenty thousand people, and you 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 don't squish your way into anything. Yeah, it's pretty amazingly large. The footprint they put the building in, everybody knows, is a little bit small. Hence the, but the fifteen thousand and change uh, capacity. So, I think it's entirely reasonable that we will, we may. I think it's entirely possible, if not likely, that there'll be an arena discussion. And it's entirely possible. A lot can happen in the planet. A lot can happen with the economy in Winnipeg and in Canada. A lot can happen with leagues. I mean, if we assumed in the world of a decade ago, it would seem like North America's economy would forever be expanding. Not a decade ago, like right after the few years after the economic crisis. North America's economy would expand for a long time. The world's going to be heading towards peace. Yada yada yada.
2: A decade ago being basically right before the right after the
0: right after the crash. The few years, there's some good growth years after the crash. Looking ahead right now, like if all socioeconomic and geopolitical factors remain constant and not worse, yes, the Winnipeg Jets will still probably be talking about a new venue or a radical. Change to their current venue, probably sometime around twenty thirty or thereafter. Now, but in a small NHL market like Winnipeg, if a lot happens on the planet, there's no reason to expect the NHL is still here then. And that's something Winnipeggers might sound that might sound crazy. It's like, wait, we just got the team back in twenty eleven, but there's not nothing lasts forever, and. There could be societal changes in 10 years that make something as esoteric as professional sport seem trivial. So it would be a fool's game to predict whether or not the team will even be here Mm -hmm. in 11 years because there may be much, much larger factors at play. And that sounds dark, but that's also... If you would have told... If people would have told you 15 years ago that everyone would have a handheld computer and that everyone was addicted to, you would have <laughs> laughed because it sounds preposterous. If you'd have told me that most people would stopped watching television and watch their computer, you would have thought, "Well, that's plausible." So much change, technological and societal, has happened. If you'd have told me that the events in the United States have taken place would transpire, people would have thought that was far-fetched. So to, looking out into the distant future about something as small in the grand scheme of things, but if everything goes well with Winnipeg's economy, Manitoba's economy, Canada's economy, and the econo- economics of pro sports, you'd still be looking at an arena debate. Yeah. And I think that's likely. No one has said so. That's my, that's my, I think that's logical. hmm because of, as you say, the discussions that are had in buildings that get old. That said, having a limited capacity at this hockey arena allows the club to keep ticket prices as high as they are,
2: and, and to keep, keep a waiting list.
0: Yeah, pressuring and demand. Yeah, They've, which is
2: in their which is in their favor, and it, it, yeah, I know. Speaking from like our season ticket group, uh, we are. Basically, like those who run the season ticket groups are basically. Uh, uh, True North has kind of like kind of outsourced the the responsibilities of of keeping butts in the seat, basically because every season ticket owner, if you're the head of a group, you're kind of in charge of finding hey, who wants these tickets? Who wants season, who wants to buy into the Jets this year? And uh, and because of that kind of a structure, with plus the perceived shortage mentality kind of thing, I think it definitely works out in their favor.
0: Yeah, I I wonder. How much longer that waiting list will last because I know more and more people are, you know, inviting other people into the groups or you can only afford those tickets for so long. It's a significant amount of revenue. This isn't the world's largest market. This isn't the wealth, the world's wealth, wealthiest city. Right. Green Bay makes the NFL work. but. Green Bay wouldn't work without Milwaukee down the road. Well, I think
2: uh, how many home games for the Green Bay Packers and how many home games for the Winnipeg Jets? Yeah, it's a little different.
0: It so. is a little different, but it's also a much bigger venue. That's true too. I am um, much more rev- much more television revenue in the NFL. Do you go to games? Do you go to Jets games yep. in person? I go to Jets games, but honestly, last year it has become you know, when you, yeah, I cringe when you called me a fan at the beginning because I don't feel like a fan anymore. I feel like more of an, more detached from it. Yeah. Uh, the people, I go, I'll go to games with somebody and they're like, like, I won't wear white to a playoff game. Or, but I, really, I refuse to wear white to a playoff game before, though. I won't wear a uniform. I won't wear, I wear black to table for 1200
2: I was going to say, though. So why, why won't you do it? <laughs> Tell me why.
0: Uh, because, uh, Uh, And I wrote this in the free press several years ago, and I'm surprised I didn't take more heck for it. But watching a whole bunch of people dressed the same way, cheering the same thing, feels a little too Munich in 1936 for me. Mm. And there's the or people forget that the origin of organized professional sport. Professional sport was a proxy for military battles. When they if you go back far enough. It, it wars were too devastating so people said you know what we'll appoint a champion from one side or the other and whoever wins this like death match will 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 the we'll loss will be one person and then it went from that to something like and i'm horribly simplifying military history here to let's have a jousting match where no one even gets hurt and then you get games professional sport is sort of a proxy for fights between different
2: different, different tribes or different
0: tribes or. or countries or anything. So there's always been something, you know, it's my mother whose parents fled, fled. What was then Poland, right, you know, in right before the second world war, Um, who always felt that professional sporting games were creeped her out. And, and I, I inherited that. So I have this, not self-loathing because that's too strong, but I often, I like going to game, I love watching an NHL game live mm-hmm. for the speed yeah. and the skill and the intensity. It's a fantastic game. And anyone who, people are all, what kinds of people are down on the NHL for one reason or the other, like ultimately it doesn't matter if the players aren't as interesting post-game as the NBA players because the product on the ice is that good. And the NHL's made a lot of rule changes in the last few years to make the product on the ice pretty good. And yeah, they'll never get the refereeing perfect, but the like they just won't, because um, you can't. It's too fast. The yeah hand pass probably shouldn't result in the goal, but whatever. The <laughs> you know it, at the All same the time Boston
2: fans are just saying thank you right now. Yeah, thanks for acknowledging
0: our. Pain. Well, you know it just probably shouldn't. At the same time, St. Louis had not won ever, and if there were, there's no more deserving fan base. Granted, how much of that fan base is. I'm not going to go there, but I can tell you this. <laughs> Here's the thing: uh, and people in St. Louis, they'll never get the attention that the 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 people in Toronto got after the after the Raptors won. But where I'm, I'll never wear white because I'll never. I'm not just because I don't want to appear to be a fan, but just because it's I don't want to be part of. Ultimately, that's just a personal choice. I don't like doing what someone tells me to do because I'm that kind of person. I don't know. That's not because I'm a huge rebel. Yeah. You know, I was earlier in this podcast extolling the virtues of capitalism, um, <laughs> quite the rebellious thing. I mean, I'll say, I'll, I'll bastardize the line uh, about about political systems, you know, the old line, democracy is the worst system in the world except for all the other ones. Yeah, like capitalism might be the worst economic system there is except for all the other ones. I mean, there's no, I just don't like. I don't feel you cover sports at all as a reporter for even a short period of time. And you, you don't feel like a fan anymore. If you, you know, it's, it's just the way it is. Yeah. Um,
2: I guess uh, like Bismarck said, I think he was Bismarck who said that you don't, you don't want to see how sausage is made, something to that effect.
0: I don't remember who's the one. You know, I was going to say that it was Churchill who said democracy is the worst system in the world, but it might not have been him. It might have. There's a lot of these old saws, or a you know lot what? older. If you watch
2: enough, if you check out enough internet memes, you realize that all of the sayings were Albert Einstein. So
0: then just go back to, take uh, that to the bank. People des- back. People get the government they deserve was De Maestra, who actually hated, hated democracy. He was a monarchist. So these things go back.
2: So he liked the other worst form of government, basically. Well, so.
0: <laughs> he didn't think the commoners could. There's that great, the, the only, the truly wonderful s- scene, part of that last, last episode of Game of Thrones that everybody picks on. I'm
2: going to plug my ears right now because I just started watching it.
0: Well, this is okay. It's okay.
2: It's one of the – you should definitely finish your –
0: Where there's a – fine, I'll leave it vague. A character proposes a democratic system, and then all the other people at the table laugh.
2: And uh, I think right now we're circling back to one of the things that you were saying before, which is that – yeah it's just that we're very in we're in very interesting times and I won't talk about uh, renaming
0: anything of fascism dome anymore well but, it's uh, yeah I mean again if I would yeah like I work for CBC and I work I do not express opinions for a living I can engage in analysis I'm confident I mean I've expressed opinions about what I've represented what some people's opinions are ultimately if the I'm not gonna sum up your own episode for you but if you want to to see whether public funding of pro sport is good or bad. Yes. How about this? You build a downtown arena to build a downtown arena. If the arena itself is said, oh, but this is doing so many other things, that, that that's gravy if any of those other things work. If you want to fund or partially fund an arena, you fund an arena to build an arena. If you want to publicly fund a pro hockey team, you do it to fund a pro hockey team. That is the goal in and of itself. And this can be In many circles seen as be seen as a positive for a city the size of winnipeg to have a professional sporting team is quite amazing only green bay is smaller among the big four there's only a few smaller you know in in the cfl regina is much smaller uh there must be there are smaller teams in the national cross league i don't know what the smallest team is but
2: like the big four like you said
0: Winnipeg is the smallest, second smallest after- And we don't
2: have, um, we're kind of an island, a population island in our geography as well.
0: Closest city to Winnipeg, metro area that's larger than- Metropolitan Winnipeg is Minneapolis-St. Paul, seven hours down the highway. Closest Canadian city larger than Winnipeg is Calgary, 13 hours down the highway, 12 if you drive like an idiot. Um, This is a not particularly dense portion of the planet. But there is a metro area nearing 800,000 people around us, or more than 800,000 people metro area. And I'll define metro area. That is all municipalities around a city where more than half the adult population go to that city for school or work every day.
2: Oh, so that's good to know. I actually didn't ever know the definition. That's that. the definition of a metro area.
0: So it's not contiguous development. That's an urban agglomeration. Metro area. So, for example, Steinbeck's not part of the Winnipeg metro area. Neither is Stonewall, but uh, St. Clement's and Brokenhead First Nation are. Oh, really? Yeah.
2: yeah. See, Stonewall, I would be guessing, is getting pretty close, would be my guess. But
0: it's surrounded by Stonewall. Most people in Stonewall live and work in Stonewall.
2: They would definitely go to school in Stonewall, but yeah, I would I would tend to agree. You're right. Although I wonder if that the extent to which that is changing. But uh,
0: StatsCan monitors this stuff very well. Yeah. So yeah. So the Winnipeg metro area is more than eight hundred thousand people, but that's marginal for a big pro sport team. It just means the number of sports. Like it was Nate Silver who did that fantastic piece that looked at the number of sports of NHL fans in various markets and found any number of mm-hmm. medium sized Canadian cities would be on paper more viable than many NHL cities like Oshawa. I'm picking one out of my if I recall correctly, Oshawa had more NHL fans than Chicago.
2: Right. That's wild. <laughs> yeah.
0: So if you wanted to go where the fans are, Toronto should the Metro Toronto should most definitely have a second team. It's the most insane, it's the most insane thing that there isn't a second team in the Toronto market.
2: Well, I mean, New York gets to have, uh, I guess, three teams. Kind of not technically, but in all intensity. Well, in them, in them, yeah.
0: I mean, you've got that urban agglomeration that goes all the way from Boston to Washington. Has the Bruins, the Islanders, the Rangers, the Devils, the Flyers, and the Capitals. Like. Yeah. Like, and then you know, Pittsburgh's far on the other side, and. Pittsburgh is actually pretty close to Columbus now that I think about it. But now, it's the geographic musings that will bore people.
2: <laughs> okay, well, let's fire him up with a couple rapid question, rapid fire questions about uh, both the Jets. Well, rapid fire, I don't have that many here, but um, but you know what? Since I actually, since we actually have uh, an impartial, non not not a capital F fan at least of the Jets, okay. we got to ask, we got to know because I know you were right about the Jets failing last year when you tweeted about their December 27th loss to the Calgary Flames.
0: I don't remember what I tweeted.
2: You called I looked it up. I couldn't find it. But I know, I swear, someone's going to look it up. But you said the Jets were uh, were uh, not going anywhere. And that, you know, first round, you called the first round loss, basically, uh, before the year turned to 2019.
0: Um, it's funny. There was. I went to one of the first games of the season, and I sit typically in a section with some pretty astute fans. It's not a very rowdy section. Lower bowl.
2: Although rowdies can be astute too, they can be.
0: They can be astute, but I sit and there was a guy wandering right out after game number two or three, saying, "Good team, not as good as last year. It's going to be a frustrating, frustrating spring." And that was in October. Yeah, fans, (laughs) fans paying attention saw it, and I remember asking him a few games later. It's like, "Hey, what were you seeing?" He's, "It's like this isn't a cohesive bunch. They don't like each other," and he was saying that. I don't know how he knew that. Yeah, but obviously that was. That appears to—I don't know if they don't like each other—but the lack of cohesion was correct.
2: Um he—he well, uh, he obviously is a listener to the uh, Jet-centric podcast because he's a very smart man. So well, here's, the thing. I, I think
0: here's he the thing. Here's the thing. You watch when those—that team was blowing leads like crazy, and there was just no way. And I remember at first when I saw Money Puck give St. Louis hadn't even, Bennington wasn't even playing for them yet and St. Louis had a better chance of winning the Cup than the Jets. And I, I was like, so I remember I just texted or tweet, tweeted at the guy, and I'm like, what's going on here? And he's just like, we're just looking at some basic metrics since so the coaching changed, and quite frankly, the Jets' record is better than the team, and St. Louis's record is worse than the team. And then St. Louis did the – like it was amazing when Ottawa went from not being in a playoff position to making the playoffs, and everyone thought that was – the the most amazing comeback in a season they've mm-hmm. ever seen. But this is legendary. Yeah. Like it'll be like the, was it the 42 New York? Oh, geez. I'm trying to remember which baseball team had like no chance and won the pennant and won the cup. Or the cup. I'm sounding like an idiot with my lack of baseball knowledge. Um, I, AJ would be proud, by the way.
2: Why? So he hates baseball. It's his definite biggest failing.
0: I Yeah, like I'm not a hardcore sports fan by any stretch of the imagination. I follow CFL and the and NHL. But I can tell you this. you, It was apparent to anyone watching this, any objective fan, you could be a huge, huge fan and still pay attention to what you're watching. Any objective fan knew that this team was not going to do that well Early on this season, relatively early this season, I mean, they limped into that All-Star break and then they just didn't come out of it. So, yeah. Well,
2: I um, definitely not to put it on you as a member of the media. You're not a Jets guy, but I definitely am frustrated by the fact that I can't understand why no one's asking more questions about just the apparent just give it, They gave up in Game Six, Did and they? Uh, I think it was basically just a perfect uh punctuation point uh exclamation mark to uh to the entire season. So Did they give up like to.
0: But we don't know. We don't know if they like what's giving up. I mean, you don't
2: I I okay, that's a good question. But for me, if I could just define it, I would actually say I think that plenty of players were still giving her shit, but I think that it was the cohesiveness and I think they decided that they were all going to pull in their own direction uh, you know, I think they know that all the cameras are on them in the playoffs. But I personally, this is just me. And who cares what I think? I'm the guy who's supposed to be asking you questions. But I think that the Jets um, players knew how hard it was gonna be. They know how much of a war uh, it is in the playoffs. They know that basically they don't get any extra money. Like, I'm not saying this is a slight. I think they knew what was ahead of them. And they, you know, after they gave up that late breaking goal in game five, they were done.
0: They gave up a lot of games. I remember thinking the Toronto game, in late October mm-hmm. where they was that two nothing lead and they lost 3-2 uh, you'll have to it was
2: i th- yeah for some reason i think they might have had a three a three goal lead at one point on that one uh, but it doesn't in any case there in, were this enough... in the NHL two goals should be safe
0: there were enough blown leads this last season to give any observer pause about the ability of this, this team to seal the deal and they didn't and, yeah, what's your next rapid-fire question?
2: Oh, yeah, so-called rapid-fire. Uh, hey, what do you think of the Jacob Truba trade?
0: I don't know. I don't know. Getting a first-round draft pick back is a rebuilding move. On the other hand, uh, I, I, I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what kind of pressures are out there. I mean – We're seeing good players being dumped for next to nothing right now for salary too. So if they figured he never wanted to be here in the long term, it is possible to not drink the Kool-Aid and not just praise every move that the GM makes and at the same time acknowledge the GM is under incredible pressures. I think people were calling the partial dismantling of this version of the Jets at the beginning of this last season. So Mm -hmm. why would anybody be surprised that happens? You're not going to get many – a player like Jacob Trouba will be very, very difficult to replace, and obviously they're going to hope that some some of their young guys are going to step up and fill the void. Look at all the new players in many teams in the league that have been surprising additions because they had an opportunity because there wasn't a Jacob Trouba in the Mm -hmm. way. It wasn't. just seems amusing. It was only a couple of years ago that Trubo was upset because he felt he didn't have enough playing time, and he left here being, you know,
2: being top dog. Yeah, he was top dog. Uh, I think this. We'll call this my last question. Um, it'll be uh, you can you can you can answer both sides of it if you'd like. But I just wanted to ask you um, uh, what what as a Jets fan, uh, lowercase F. Uh, Or you can put that in quotations. But what worries you? Can I put an asterisk
0: on it? Let's throw an
2: asterisk on it. That works for me. What worries you most as a Jets fan? What uh, excites you most as a Jets fan? Take it any way you want.
0: I don't feel like a fan. I don't. I'm not worried about anything, and I'm not excited about anything. I feel like I the playoff run in the previous season when they went to the third round that was their that was I think their biggest shot and that might be their biggest shot for a while, if, if you look at the odds of that many teams. I think it's not my worry as a fan. As an observer of this team, Yeah, n- not an expert by any stretch of any imagination, it will be interesting to see after this season what they do next season with a slightly different, slightly retooled lineup. Will you see cohesiveness, or will it be more the same? Will the team commitment to structure that everybody talks about from the previous season will that come back? Um, they have the
2: same coach coming back. I'm wondering personally, uh, just listening to hear you talk as an observer. Uh, I always want to hope, but but that's a that's a practical thing that did not change.
0: How many coaches have lasted longer than Maurice? Uh,
2: he is he's right up there. He's one of the longest serving coaches for sure hmm. in the NHL. And they were eliminated in a team in the first round that uh, mysteriously caught fire right about the time they put in a new coach. That's kind of what my that's my that's what my well, it wasn't was. mysterious.
0: It was they, they got they had a buy-in there and they, from the players. I mean, St. Louis was expected to be a decent team this past year and uh, was underperforming for one reason or another. Not typically, you fire a coach mid-season and the team doesn't turn around like that. Yeah. Paul Maurice was a mid-season replacement and the Jets didn't climb out of the but that was a vastly different like people for you look if you ever just gone back to look at the Jets roster in previous in some of those early seasons I mean they're yeah
2: like, it's a lot different it's a lot different like, we, had, uh, James, we had uh like Kyle Wellwood was our second line center we had Kyle
0: uh, he had amazing Corsi though like I mean like
2: Okay, 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 all right. But still, but still, there's not even, even if you like Kyle Wellwood, who is his line, like we had
0: he guys got guys like
2: Antropov and Tanner Klass
0: and Jim Slater. Wellwood possessed the puck. But I, I'm more thinking of people like uh, James Wright, like really marginal yeah. NHL players that 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 were making, that were playing likely because they took, probably because they were great people and took, Took direction and we're good team players. I don't know. I have no idea. I'm just guessing here.
2: Well, I um, I'm just going to pretend that you predicted the Jets to win the Stanley Cup next year. So I'm I can not feel the
0: courage. I'm not predicting that. I, I wouldn't predict that.
2: I Le- can predict. I can pretend anything I want.
0: I'm not predicting the Jets of winning the Cup next year. Um, I if you would have asked me after Game One of Round Three last year, were they going to win the Cup? I was like, yeah, they're rip after Nashville. They're just ripping through this Vegas team.
2: I actually, agree. I actually agree with you, and I think it's, it's, boy, windows. Uh, the whole idea of a window, a championship window, is, uh, is very fleeting, and it's hard to grasp. As far as I'm how concerned. do you think Vancouver sure fans, like
0: how do you think Vancouver fans feel after being up over Boston by a game? They'll never get over that. that. Well, they had, did
2: they have two or three chances? I think they had two chances to win, yeah. uh, to close that Stanley Cup, yeah. Out. yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, if the Raptors would have blown it, we would have seen the same thing in Toronto. And part of me, the schadenfreude. Uh, would have been.
2: <laughs> well, you're probably not alone in Winnipeg that we're feeling things like that. But, yeah, it's uh, a
0: lot of Raptors fans. For whatever reason, it, I
2: think it's, the Raptors run just kind of proved to me that there's definitely something behind this idea of Canada. And uh,
0: I guess uh, when I saw something
2: going on there. so
0: Seeing Montrealers cheer for a Toronto team was something I, if you would have told me that, yeah. like that was the craziest thing I've ever seen.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is, but, um, but we should, uh, we should wrap it up. Everyone listening to this, they're, uh,
0: they're bored and tired.
2: They finished their dishes long ago. They finished, um, they finished their road trip out to Morden, and, um, and we should just give a quick finish off. I'm assuming there's a promo code for anyone who's listened this long and wants to buy one of your books. Can you, can you don't, don't give a promo code or anything, obviously, but just tell us, Tell us uh, the titles of your books.
0: And, I'm the uh, author of a day tripper's guide to Canada. Uh, to, excuse me, day tripper's guide to Manitoba, Canada's undiscovered province. That is a travel guidebook to Manitoba. It is in its latest printing from 2015. Originally published in 2006, it's a Canadian bestseller. It's a guide to all of Manitoba, all the way up to Churchill. Even though you're not going there for the day, I'm the author of Stuck in the Middle dissenting views of Winnipeg as well as stuck in the middle to defining views of Manitoba with Brian Scott photographer wonderful photographer he has a Winnipeg photo blog called Winnipeg love hate and the Winnipeg book looks at Winnipeg and the Manitoba book looks at Manitoba and um all three are at McNally Robinson and most other bookstores
2: and I can attest as someone who's given uh two of those three as a gift uh that they go over really well and um yeah, hey, I, also your Twitter, if no one follows you on Twitter yet, uh, they probably should start, so you are?
0: B-K-I-V-E-S.
2: That is pronounced?
0: b rhymes in with Beavis as in butthead.
2: Okay, remember that, everyone's familiar with Beavis and butthead. Uh, if and... you're over the
0: age of 35.
2: Yeah, <laughs> uh, And uh, yeah, so I'm Mike. Uh, my Twitter is at Mike Friesen10. I'm a very popular and well-regarded Twitter account and uh you'll love to follow it so uh thanks a lot for listening
0: i'm Kirk gilbach and thank you for listening to the jet-centric broadcast